Let us then proceed uh, with more on Chapter 5. Last time I talked about taxonomy and so on. I'd like to show you an example of why something like this is important. Now, here's something that I made up a while back, which I call the semantic chart of exceptional circumstances. Now, the point of this is, back in uh, 1989, when the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Convention was in Kansas City, there was this big discussion of authorizing laymen to do word and sacrament ministry. And uh, what, what it rode upon was the notion that in emergencies, uh, the word and the sacraments could be administered by non-ordained people. And what started to happen was there was a kind of linguistic mixture of, emer and by the way, this emergency goes back to the German note, which means um, uh, in a, a critical situation, an emergency. And uh, uh, these kind of passage were, pastor, pastors were called uh, Nothilfer, uh, helpers in the time of need, of need. And uh, so this emergency started to be used synonymously with uh, exceptional circumstances. And what started to happen then is people were talked about as uh, uh, doing these pastoral acts in circumstances which were exceptional. And then if you thought about it, it didn't seem a whole lot like an emergency, but they started to be used as synonyms. Well, if you take a look with what I've done on this paper here now, and I'm just totally making this up. I want you to know this. Uh, but it, this seemed reasonable. If there is an exceptional circumstance, it means it's out of the ordinary. Well, this could be critical or it could be non-critical. Well, if it's critical, we would call that a crucial time. Then moving down there. That crucial time, that critical exceptional circumstance, could be a time of need or it could be a time of blessing, an advantageous time. So it's crucial, but it could be negative or positive. Now we move further down the taxonomic scale. If it's negative, a time of need, it, if it's short term, we would call that an emergency. That is to say, an emergency is a short-term time of need that is critical and out of the ordinary. However, if it's long-term time of need, critical and out of the ordinary, we call that chronic, a chronic illness. Notice if you go down the other side of the taxonomy to a positive time, we call an advantageous time that is crucial and out of the ordinary an 
opportunity if it is short term. I don't know if we have a word for that if it's long term. So in a sense, if you look at the way I've laid this chart out, an emergency and an opportunity are actually pretty, uh, they have a lot of components that are alike, except they have this critical difference in positive and negative. Now, my point here is, I thought that in some ways, the people were, be, were being sold a bill of goods here by starting out talking about emergencies, kind of getting that to morph into exceptional circumstances. And then pretty soon, everything that comes down the chart also on the positive side is under exceptional circumstances. See? So this is actually a very important, a very important linguistic issue as to what you're using for a synonym and if you're going up the taxonomic scale for your synonym to exceptional circumstance, you've got to make sure then that it doesn't cover all the other stuff that can go on that doesn't go down the same set of legs. Uh, by the way, just a historical note here, it's really as a result of this that the current SMP program, the Specific Ministry Pastor Program, uh, is uh, a kind of motivated to kind of deal with this whole thing and, and bring everything under Augustana 14 with people uh, being rightly called who are administering word and sacrament. So, I mean, that's a, a great development in that sense. But uh, there's, there's something to be say, said for this in terms of what's actually happened in our, in our own synod. Now, um, uh, we talked about illegitimate totality transfer, uh, the big ball of meaning, at the, end of, uh, <clears throat> at the end of last time. And it occurred to me in reading your papers, um, Josh, I think it was you that in your summary came up with the, um, uh, in, as part of your summary, the example of blessing and cursing for Barak. Now, see, it would be an illegitimate totality transfer to take these two different semantic fields, blessing and cursing, and try to put them together to say something like this. A curse is actually a blessing because what it does is it uh, brings the right kind of reaction from God or something like that. You can't lump all this stuff together. One of the main things I want to focus on today was the issue of language level or register. Kind of the more technical term is register. <clears throat> and what I would like to talk about in particular is how this issue of register is actually helpful for us as we consider Bible translations and the Greek and the Hebrew of the scriptures. So I'm going to put up a chart for you here that was devised by a guy named Wonderly, W.W. W. Wonderly. And it goes like this. This would be, in general, a layout of linguistic usage. 
this total rectangle. And you'll notice here that there is a solid, straight, black line toward the bottom. Below that line would be deemed linguistic usage that is uh, non-standard, ungrammatical, like we ain't or something like that, or I done seed him. Above this line, this wavy line, would be considered those linguistic usages that would be kind of literary and would be uh, uh, the kind that a person who had special linguistic or literary training would use, like arranging a presentation in chiastic structure or something like that. So in other words, up here, this would be specifically literary, and this down here would be ungrammatical. Now, here's the beauty of this diagram. <clears throat> in terms of people's interacting with this, everything that is above here, above the solid line, with the lines going this way, would be acceptable, acceptable to educated people. Everything that is in this area, with the line going this way, is accessible accessible to people without special formalized training. Now, note the big payoff here. The cross-hatched area in the middle is precisely the area in which you have linguistic usage that is both acceptable to the educated people and accessible by those who are not formally educated. This, gentlemen, is where you aim your ministry. Your linguistic usage has got to be in that central area. Thus, if you're preaching and you're saying, If we consider the collocation of pericopal entities, uh, sorry, you're above the wavy line there, and there's a whole bunch of people who aren't going to get what's going on. If, on the other hand, you're saying, dude, that's smooth, then some of the people who are in the upper educated classes are going to simply stop listening to you. So you have to aim at this area. Now I'm going to take this chart and I'm going to sort of transform it for you into the way Bible translations would lay out on the chart. English Bible translations. Please note that when I say that I'm going to put up for you here 
how you would lay out the understanding of English Bible translations. I am not talking about their accuracy. Am I talking about their accuracy? No, I'm not talking about their accuracy. I am talking about readability and accessibility. It's all I'm talking about. Now, at this point in time, the King James is above the wavy line. Thus, in the King James in the Psalms, when you have a line like, in the morning, let my prayer prevent thee. This is an old meaning of prevent, coming from the Latin prevenio, meaning come before. Inaccessible to people who have not learned Latin. If, on the other hand, you have the cotton patch version of the Bible. Or, JB, what was the name of the one we had in Greek? Word on the street. Word on the street. That is not going to be acceptable to a whole bunch of people. Well, all right. What would be right in the center of our cross-hatched area, the NIV. This is why people like the New International Version, not because it's accurate, but because it has an incredible readability. Very acceptable to educated people, very accessible to those without a lot of formal education. All right, let's lay a couple of other translations up there. I would say as you start moving up here toward literary, you're starting to get the RSV up here. Uh, you would get the new ESV kind of in between, I think. Um, now, somewhat lower on the scale is going to be the, um, uh, the TEV, Today's English Version, or Good News for Modern Man. That would be down here because it's, it's rather informally written. Rather informally written. The Jerusalem Bible would be kind of up over here. And the NASB which is a little bit in literary terms, not accuracy. I really want to emphasize this. We're not talking about accuracy. In literary terms, it's a little clunky, and so you're probably up something like this, as is the New English Bible, which has phrases like, no one adds a codicil to a will. Well, not everybody's going to know what codicil is unless you have been somewhat well-educated. Ed uh, various paraphrases, like Philip's paraphrase, would be here as well, uh, a little bit lower on the scale. I think, uh, in addition to the point that I made before about the fact that your ministry has to be conducted linguistically in the crosshatch area, I want you to understand 
This is exactly why the NIV continues to hold a large-scale appeal, even though it is in many ways, from an accuracy linguistic standpoint, quite bad. But it just reads so well. Okay. Now, can we do the same thing for books of the New Testament in Greek? Yes, we can. And this would basically be how I would lay them out personally. Up here at the top, you'd have the book of Hebrews. And up here also, you will have 1 Peter. In my view, the one that's kind of dead on in the center would generally be Matthew. Paul, more sophisticated, and Luke Acts is kind of the same thing. Mark and John will be lower on the scale and more toward informality, though I will hasten to add, Mark is a lot more formal than people give it credit for. Now, would there be anything that would be below the line as far as, I guess what you would call, really uh, ungrammatical? Yes, the book of Revelation. The apocalypse does, in fact, use grammatical structures that are, quote, improper or ungrammatical and would not be seen as, if I may use this, correct Greek. Now, there's some interesting books that you can put up here, like the book of Jude as an example. The book of Jude seems to be written in an Asiatic style, which, had, which was generally described as bombastic, a lot of unusual vocabulary, big words, like sort of like listening to Bill Buckley having a bad day or something like that. Um, so I would put Jude up there, um, up pretty high on the scale. But that's approximately the way you would lay it out, and that's why I tell everybody after they finish with Greek, go read Matthew. If you want to at the beginning, skip the genealogy, but then start on in, and it's kind of good standard stuff. Good standard stuff. Um, now, how would this lay out with the Old Testament and Hebrew? Now, here I have to rely a little bit on my colleagues, but here's what I've determined in talking to them. That standard Hebrew is deemed to be about what you'd see around a thousand or something like that time of David. And essentially, the prose of 1 Samuel is deemed to be about average. About average. Then you would have uh, Genesis like this. The prose parts of the prophets and something like Deuteronomy, which is pretty simple stuff. Deuteronomy would be the least formal. Up here, 
you get Joshua and Judges. And then, interestingly enough, somebody like Tim Seleska will tell you, what would you put above the line as far as literary? And that would be um, archaic Hebrew. See, it's just like the King James over here. Such as the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, the Song of Deborah in Judges, whoops, Judges, the Book of Job, definitely, I can attest to that, the Book of Job, very difficult, uh, and Ecclesiastes and so on. So that's going to be your, your difficult things. Now, it was interesting, when I asked someone like Tim, would there be anything below the line that would be considered sort of ungrammatical or something like that? He said, Hosea is generally thought to be written in kind of a northern Israel dialect. And as a result, would not be considered to be standard Hebrew. Okay, but there you go. <clears throat> so when you see something like these songs, which is archaic, or Job in particular, and if you look at that, it really is like that. Got to be almost a, a specialist to be dealing with that well. But things like <clears throat> the historical books are sort of in there. I think probably Jonah would go in there. Deuteronomy's definitely on the simple side. Deuteronomy is kind of like the OT equivalent linguistically of the Gospel of John. So let this be, if I may put it this way, <clears throat> let this be a kind of a guide for you as you're trying to review your Greek and Hebrew and as you're seeking, um, you know, picking out a Bible version, and so forth. Um, you know, it's interesting. Let me just say this. Uh, the NASB is, in many ways, in terms of sheer accuracy, probably the best translation, but it's kind of clunky. <clears throat> the NIV is really very good linguistically, but has accuracy problems. This is why I'm kind of an ESV fan. The ESV is done within the tradition of the linguistic structure of the King James, seeks to update that, and at the same time, um, it does not seek to get uh, too far away from it. Okay, any questions on this? Yeah, uh, go ahead, Dan. Uh, what about the oh, you know, that that's taken away a, a few of the phrases like superfluity of naughtiness and stuff like that. But it's still, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like the NASB. It's still pretty formalistic. It's better than reading the old King James, though, from that point of view. Yeah. Anybody else? Okay. Okay. Now, uh, Let's get on to what I consider in many ways to be the centerpiece of this chapter, 
which is the syntactical sort of stuff. What relates to what, and how is it related? Now, I'd like you. I'm going to. I'll put this on the camera in a second, but I'm going to hold it up. This up for you to see here. This particular picture with the flag and the words. Okay. I have no idea where I got this. I pick stuff up all over the place. All right. Now I'm not sure I got it from there, but. Um, my point with this, it says, we support with prayer. And then right below it, there's a flag, and there's the Lutheran Church of Webster Gardens. Now, you know what the flag is and what it might symbolize. You know the meaning of the phrase Lutheran Church of Webster Gardens. And you know the meaning of the phrase or clause, we support with prayer. My question is, what is the total meaning of that? Does that mean we support with prayer our country signed the Lutheran Church of Webster Gardens? Or does it mean we support with prayer the Lutheran Church of Webster Gardens and we're patriotic? Or does it mean we support with prayer our country and the Lutheran Church of Webster Gardens? Now, those are three different total meanings, but I haven't changed the meaning of any part. Okay? Now, this is an excellent example that the totality is more than the sum of the parts. But it's also an excellent example that you've got to actually consider things like what goes with what. You can't just line stuff up. It's not like marbles in a box. To be honest with you, I don't really have any idea what this means. I mean, my suspicion is that it means we support with prayer both our country, symbolized by the flag, and the Lutheran Church of Webster Gardens. But that may not be right. I mean, that may not be right. It, might, it really might be we support with prayer the Lutheran Church of Webster Gardens and da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, we're patriotic at the same time. Now, what's interesting about this, too, is notice that when we put the flag up there, we're taking that kind of non-literally. We'll deal with that in Chapter 7. So, in other words, we're not saying this. We support with prayer the Lutheran Church of Webster Gardens and flags. Right? So, or flag makers or something like that. So there's all kinds of stuff going on when there are semiotic communications. <clears throat> now, I don't know honestly if there is a more critical example. It's in the book, but I'm telling you, I want to go over this with you guys because this will be directly relevant to your ministries. Look at Ephesians 4. Eleven and twelve. <clears throat> and now you have Caiautas, he himself gave tus men apostolos, the apostles, tus de, the prophets, and the evangelists, tus de poimenas, 
and the pastors kai didaskalus and teachers. Well, here's our first thing. Does teachers go with pastors? Is it pastors and teachers because there's only one article? Or, as you read in this chapter, is the fact that we've had men and de, men, de, de, and now all of a sudden we have, after one men and three des, we have a chi. Does that chi bring the series to an end? Which is what I think it is. In other words, the tus poimenas and the didaskalus are separate offices. They're not under the same one because I'm seeing that the pattern tells me that it's ending a sequence, but each of these are individual parts. But a lot of people don't agree with me. They say tus covers them both. All right? We're only beginning. Now, so you have this. Now what are we going to conclude as far as the relationship of verse 11 to verse 12? And it starts out and it says, Proston kat artisman, for the outfitting, Um, for the outfitting of the saints. Now notice the pros. And then we have for ice, air gun, work of ministry. And another ice for the oiko domain, building up of the body of Christ. Let me just check here whether that's got, um, uh, yes, it does, the body of Christ does have articles. Okay? Tu somatas, tu Christu. All right, now. How do these things go together exactly? Is it this? He gave the five offices for the outfitting of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. Well, this is the way it was always taken, and there are commas in the King James and in the Nestle Allen Greek text up through the 25th edition. However, with the RSV and the 26th edition of the Nestle text, they took this comma out. And so now it became this. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, it wasn't Edoken he gave them. Okay, Edoken. He gave for this, for this, and for this. That's the old version. Now it is this. So in other words, this is the old way of doing. He gave it for three reasons. Now what we have is he gave it for this and then 
that those are subordinate. So if I ask, what does Eis Ergon Diakonias go with? Your answer would be, under the new understanding, it goes under for the outfitting of the saints. It is not to be related back to the main verb edokan. How do we decide this? Like I say, there's been this historic sea change in this. Now, some people will say, well, it's obvious, Jim. Look at the prepositions. You have pros, and then you have ice, and then you have ice. And I look at those, and I say, yeah, but you know what? I've been noticing these interesting patternings that Paul does, like with the men and de on the one hand and the chi on the other hand, and I notice this. I notice that you have pros, ice, ice, and I notice you have article, article, no article, no article, no article, article. Ho, 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 how about that? Paul's actually this good. There are all kinds of combos and changes that are done for stylistic reasons. So, it could well be that the pros just begins a series, and I didn't mention this in the book, that often a different uh, factor in a series will end a series, but a different one will sometimes begin a series, exactly like this. See? Exactly like this. So, you can argue now that it should be the old way. For the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. Then I'd be emphasizing the following point, like this. The Lord gave these offices, and this is why he gave them. Now, if I want to just take off that hat, <clears throat> move over here and argue the other way, Here's what I say. Yeah, but look at the pattern of the signifiers, especially the pros and the ice. There are two different ones. And that must mean that the second two are subordinated to the first two. And so it is for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Rejoinder. Yes, but... Doesn't it seem strange that he would give these offices precisely so that somebody else can do the work? I mean, shouldn't he be given these offices so that they can do the work? Yes, but if you do it this way, this involves all the laity in the ministry of the church. See, And we're off to the races. This is such a critical passage. And the fact of the matter is, nobody can agree on anything. Now, one of the papers here, Sean, clearly not trying to get a ticket on the trip on the train to oblivion. 
Now, this is very interesting, and I'm a little bit surprised that you are the first person to raise this point. I know that you keep saying that you will te teach us later how we can be certain of translations, but it seems like the further we go into this book, the less certain we are. Perhaps it is because all your examples are highlighting the most difficult passages, and by comparing them to passages where the meanings are more universally evident, that we can identify the best translations of difficult passages. But so far, we are mainly dealing with difficult passages, so it is becoming more uncertain in my head as we go. And it'll get worse. You get driven to the abyss through chapter 9. Then, hopefully, we throw a rope ladder down there. All right? But I wanted to particularly speak to your uh, sentiment here. Because, specifically, your observation that I'm dealing with difficult passages is right on target. See, I'm trying not to go through all of this linguistic stuff, and then it turns out it's like buying a Maserati to go get a loaf of bread. You know, I mean, it kind of doesn't make any difference. I want to show you why all of these categories and stuff make a difference in why we argue about what we argue about. See? And one of my goals is to make each of you rigorously self-aware of every single interpretive move you make as you're doing a text. There is nothing obvious. So you can't say, or as my sainted teacher, Martin uh, Franzman, Martin Franzman used to say, and this is a great saying, he said, an exegete must never say, of course. There is no of course. Of course, that's got to be subordinate because of the change in prepositions. Of course, that's not subordinate because of the patterning. See, there is no of course. You have to argue the thing in terms of totalities, what's giving you the greatest overall meaning. And finally, that's what we, can, that's what we have to aim at. Uh, now, my own feeling here, by the way, on this passage is <clears throat> that the old translation is the best one, that there are three parallel things, and because I, I would find it strange in the flow of Paul's argument that he would say, and he does this in the verses right before verse 11, <clears throat> that he has ascended into heaven that he may give good gifts to men. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers so that they could help other people to do the work. Now, I mean, that doesn't make much sense to me. See, it seems to me he, he gave them so that they could get these things to take place right here. But that's my reading. And I, I recognize that people who read opposite to this have evidence uh, going for them. I mean, believe me, guys, this is a critical passage. Because you keep hearing in pastors' conferences and such about equipping of the saints. You know, it all comes from this. As if ministry takes place through the equipping of the saints to do the ministry. And I would guess, not guess, I would assert that that is not the way it actually is. Um, by the way, 
there's another very interesting thing that comes up when you do this particular exercise, and that is this. Diakonia. <clears throat> what do we mean by diakonia? Do we mean work of ministry as in word and sacrament ministry? Or do we mean ministry like ministering to people's physical needs? My contention would be if you change the relationship among the clauses, you change how you understand diakonia. So if it is the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers who are doing this, then the work of ministry is ministry of word and sacrament. But if you take the other way, equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, now we understand diakonia as what we would call diaconal ministry of ministering to people's physical welfare. So the parts are going to be subject to your understanding of the relationships of the whole. This is a tremendous example here. Questions? Anything? Now, is this an either-or situation, or can it be a both kind of situation? You know, I'm not thinking so. Um, uh, <clears throat> I think there are ways in which with maybe a, a specific word or a specific clause... <clears throat> but I'm not sure that we've got exactly double entendre on total structures. See, but this is a great question. You're asking these big kind of hermeneutical questions. Can you do double entendres not on vocables but on structural entities? Hey, who's got that answer someplace? Is there a double entendre dictionary someplace that you look that up? And, I mean, you have to realize... With a question like that, when I'm answering the way I am, I'm answering as somebody who's thought deeply about these things, but honestly, it's my opinion. It's not like I've got some direct line to God on this or something. And anybody who says the opposite's making it up just as much as I am. So you finally have to argue it on the basis of totality of understanding. But this is a great question. And it's the kind of thing that um, uh, that we have to that we have to be aware that we're dealing with as we do a class like this. Now the thing is, Chet, here's where you've got to be so careful about the of course, okay? Because it's very easy for somebody to, after I go through my whole discourse, to say something like this. Well. I think maybe we should understand it as it means both, a double entendre. Is that okay? See, can you just sort of assert that and then suddenly that becomes an alternative? Or can I say, no, you can't because you can't have that in structural elements? Then who's going to referee that kind of thing? So uh, just be aware of how much interpretation does involve you drawing the lines of relationships. That's kind of the point of the second half of the chapter. 
Okay. <clears throat> now we get the issue of how are things related. This one is what's related to what. But let's say you do figure out what's related to what, and then you want to ask, well, how are things related? Now, uh, Josh, would you hand out this particular uh, thing that I've Xeroxed off? I'll put one up here on the uh, camera. This is from J.P. Lowe's book, Johannes P. Lowe, uh, Semantics of New Testament Greek. It's on your bibliography as um, uh, something that of, of special order uh, helps. Now, what he does here is he lays out Colossians 1, 1 to 4. And before we take a look, notice how he has five cola. And one of you asked, what is a colon? A colon is essentially a thought unit. It's not a whole sentence, but a thought unit. Thus, he gets five thought units out of the four verses. Okay, now just follow the Greek on the sheet with me, and I'll translate for you. I un sin eger theta. If, therefore, you were raised with Christ, ta'ano, the things above seek. Where Christ is, sitting, endexaatheu, at the right hand of God. Colon 2. The things above think about, not the things on earth. Colon 4. For you died, ap ethanata, and your life, kekryptai, is hidden with Christ in God. What's critical now is colon 5. When Christ appears, your life, then also you, kai humais, with him will appear in glory. Now, look what he says at the bottom of the page. As was said above, the pivot point of the passage is the expression ta'ano, zetaita, phronaita. So that would be uh, colon two, which is to follow upon if therefore you were raised with Christ. Now, here's what I'm interested in. Look what he does next motivated in colon four. Now, what does he mean motivated? For, gar, because. For you died and your life is hidden. Of which colon five gives the result. So colon five, when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory, is the result. Now look up on your, the right side of the page. He's got this in diagrammatic form. You have the exhortation, colon number four gives you the reason for you died, and colon number five gives the result. You, so let, let me do it like this translation-wise. I'll go back to the chart here. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. As a result, when Christ ap uh, appears, <clears throat> then you will appear with him in glory. Now here's my question, guys. How did he know that? How did he know that colon 5 gave the result? He knew colon 4 gave the reason 
because of the conjunction gar. So remember in the chapter how I said the relationships are signified by like subordinating conjunction words? Fine. That's terrific. Now you get to colon five. For you died. That's still colon four. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, as a result, when Christ appears. But wait a minute. Maybe it's not result. Maybe it's something like this. After all, when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. That's why you ought to do this. Or how about this? I'm going back to colon one now. If therefore you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above. Colon four. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Furthermore, When Christ appears, then you will appear with him in glory. How about this relationship? Colon four. For you died, and your your life is hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. In other words, it's not hidden anymore. Now, I've given you three different possible types of relationships. And what's the problem here? The problem is specifically, there's no specific semantic marker. Now, there are two points that I want to make as a result of this. These are very important. Number one, this is why I said in the book that there is no such thing as syntax. That it's all actually a subcategory of semantics. That is to say, the meaning, uh, the relationship between meanings also has to be signed somewhere. If you sign it, I mean, even if you sign it by standing it next to it, okay? But you're, you're reading something as signifying a relationship. And if you are reading something as signifying a relationship, that's semantics. It is signifying something. Secondly, we all have to draw the lines. This is going to be similar to what I have up on the board. It's easy to draw the lines when you have actual line-drawing words like subordinating conjunctions. It's really hard to draw the lines when you don't have those kinds of things. It's hard to draw the lines, and then it's hard to know what the relationship actually is when you connect the lines. I think this is a fantastic example. That last phrase, when Christ appears, then you will appear with him in glory, You've got, you do have, I I wasn't using it to illustrate this, but you do have the problem of which clause it goes with. And then once you decide that, you don't even know what the heck the relationship is. Now, guys, this is what diagramming a sentence is all about. Diagramming a sentence, you're drawing the lines. But in addition to that, okay, in addition, addition to that. I got my loafers on so I can do this now. 
tech guys, watch your monitors. Okay, there goes one shoe. That's drawing the lines. But you gotta let the other shoe drop. And that is, I've drawn the lines, these clauses relate to this clause, but what's the relationship? Both of those things are really critical. I've, again, Nider, going back to your point, I am taking really tough examples here because I want to show you how hard we actually have to work at this. And it's not like falling off a log. There's kind of nothing obvious. People are making moves all the time as they interpret. And they have to make those moves. You have to. You're forced to. You can't just, Paul isn't just throwing a sentence in here for no reason. You are forced to make those kinds of moves. Okay, any question on this particular example? I mean, I happen to think that Lowe is completely wrong about this. I don't think that that gives a result at all. I think it's really something like, uh, <clears throat> but when Christ appears, or after all, when Christ appears, something like that. But you have to argue it on the basis of Paul's overall argumentation. Now, this business of not only what relates to what, but how the things are related to each other is the point of addendum 5a on Hebrew poetry. All right? So you got these lines. You know the lines are kind of parallel. Well, then what are you supposed to do? See, are they kind of going on to a new topic? Are they expanding? Are they restating the same thing? It's that nature of the relationship that's really difficult. And you've got to be aware that that is precisely what it is that you have to do. You know, it's interesting. We can end on this. It's interesting that Andy Bartelt, who helped me with that addendum 5A, took this particular, he, he took, I, I can put this up here. He took the mission statement of Concordia Seminary. <clears throat> Concordia Seminary serves church and world by providing theological education and leadership centered in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ for the formation of pastors, missionaries, and leaders in the name of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Now, I want you to take a look at what he wrote about this down in this paragraph here. The mission statement serves us quite well. It is short and to the point. It includes an intentionally broader sense of purpose than simply that of raising up the next generation. It is written in chiastic structure. Ozzy, did you know that? Like well-crafted Hebrew poetry centered in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It has 70 syllables, 29 before the central line of 12, and 29 following. The first and final lines work Together, Concordia Seminary serves church and world in the name of the LCMS. The phrase church and world was deliberate. We serve our church, the LCMS, but on behalf of our dear synod, we serve a broader uh, Christian church and indeed all the world in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now we go on here. The second and fourth lines work together. So look at this. I'll go back up. By providing theological education and leadership da -da -da -da, for the formation of pastors and missionaries. How about that? A, B, C, B, A. And what's the center? The center is, and it's even got the word, centered in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did anybody actually do this? I mean, this is unbelievable, especially the syllable count, 29, 12, 29. Now, so there's the structure. Can we make anything of the structure? Are we allowed to read it? A, A prime, B, B prime, C. Is that okay? So, drawing the lines, what are the relationship between the lines? Absolutely critical. On Wednesday, guys. I'm going to take some of your papers, and then we will move on to chapter 6, which is the next of the really critical chapters on levels of signifiers and reading texts at various levels. Thanks a lot.